Hi. Welcome to another edition of the Coronavirus Lectures. This one is on the role of metaphor or what it is that makes a story. It's simultaneously the easiest and maybe also the most difficult lesson to learn. Let's start with an NPR story about egg collecting. When Dylan Thuris was mapping out his summer road trip, he marked a location in Camarillo, California, in an office park. Thuris is the co-founder of the website Atlas Obscura, which catalogs the world's hidden wonders. The tip for this hidden wonder came from photographer Rosamond Purcell. She left Dylan a voicemail saying he had to go to the Western Foundation of Vertebrate Zoology. I have so many things to say about it, but they don't have that many visitors, and you'd have to make an appointment ahead of time. So Dylan made an appointment, and here he is with the latest story from our summer road trip series with Atlas Obscura. The Western Foundation is about an hour outside of Los Angeles. It's a smooth, off-white building that might as well be an insurance office. But when we enter, we move from nondescript to a riot of natural history. Wow! This is amazing. There are taxidermy birds everywhere I look, and they're perched in cases on 900 white specimen cabinets. And inside each cabinet are eggs. More than a million individual eggs. That's Dr. Linnea Hall. She's the executive director here, and it's obvious that she loves her job. We're kind of like constantly kids in a candy store. Yes, it's very nice. The same goes for her partner at the foundation, collections manager Renee Carrado. He wears a brimmed hat, the kind with strings that tie together under the neck. They say, don't put all the eggs in one basket, but we did. They're both in their 50s, and they interact with the kind of ease you have with someone you work with for many years. When I walk in, they're both geeking out over this wooden cabinet donated by the family of a deceased egg collector. Egg collecting was once a common hobby for self-styled naturalists and private collectors. Here you see that uh, we have the, from 1897 a brown pelican uh, eggs. They're really very important because it was before DDT. DDT. That was an insecticide banned in the U.S. in the 1970s. And it was banned in no small part because of studies done on eggs, including some housed in the Western Foundation. Today, Dr. Hall says eggs are revealing how climate change is affecting bird populations by the egg size, the nest location, and other data. She says that they're learning more and more from eggs all the time. Oh, gosh. So there's toxicology, there's behavior, there's physiology, there's evolution, there's taxonomy. There is a wealth of subject matter. Just about every egg you can imagine is in here. And the eggs are all hollow. They're drained of their contents through a small hole drilled into the bottom. There are round owl eggs, chalky cuckoo eggs, multicolored tinamou eggs. Even green eggs. Pointy eggs, shiny eggs, tiny eggs, big eggs. This is the elephant bird egg. Yeah, so this is the largest um, egg that ever exists. That elephant bird egg, it's the size of a watermelon. I mean, a bird's body created these. You know, that's, that's pretty phenomenal. I wish I could create an egg. Dr. Hall and Renee Carrado do everything in the foundation, from huge research projects to field expeditions to helping vacuum. We work really well together. And his passion and exuberance and stuff is awesome. The academic and the crazy guy from the field. <laughs> yeah, you make a good team. Yeah, we make a good team. On one collecting trip in rural Guatemala, Carrado climbed a cactus and carried down a pair of eggs 
in his mouth. How do you climb a cactus, you ask? Uh, Carefully. Carefully. (laughs) As they take me through the collection, they tell me another story of a momentous trip where Corrado's personal story and the foundation's mission came together and impacted a river in Guatemala. So this is pretty interesting, right? Bird eggs the size of watermelons, offbeat natural history museum that maybe you'd like to visit on your next trip to Camarilla, California. But that's actually not the story. Keep listening. It was back in 2002 when they'd only been working together for about a month. And they took their first business trip. One of our ornithological science meetings in Louisiana. They caught a small commuter plane to New Orleans and ended up flying into Tropical Storm Isidore. Storm Isidore is making landfall at this time. The biggest threat from Isidore... It wasn't that big a plane, I recall, and it jumped around quite a bit. And I know that Renee, in particular, felt like, okay, this is the end. I thought we'll die. And I really, really, I thought that the plane will crash. Up until this point, Renee Corrado had been carrying a secret with him. I didn't, I never told my wife or my kids, but because I will die anyway, uh, I told Linnea... And she started taking notes. And so she said, Rene, you had to write a, a book. You had to write a book to show the people that there is hope. Corrado's secret was simple. He was ashamed of a childhood spent in poverty in Guatemala, eating from the trash and working as a shoeshine boy. At 21, fearful for his life, he made his way to the U.S. He worked as a cook, a house cleaner, until he got a job as a gardener at the Western Foundation of Vertebrate Zoology. Gardening is not bad. I mean, I love it. But I didn't want to be just gardener. He would scarf down his lunch and run over to watch the biologists at work. The founder noticed. And I said, yeah, yeah, I want to be a biologist. Uh, I don't speak English. I only have sixth grade schooling. But yes. And he said, oh, it's no problem. You just learn English. And then you take regular classes. Then you become a biologist. No problem. And I said, sure, yeah. Corrado got his immigration papers through a 1986 Ronald Reagan amnesty program. He went to night school to learn English, got his high school degree, and graduated first in his class, took ornithology classes by mail from Cornell, and he got his degree in biology from Oxnard College. And now I am the collections manager of the place where I was the, the gardener. So I think life is good. And over the course of the next decade, Dr. Hall helped him write that book about his life but I see it all as him. I was just the conduit. Corrado published El Lustrador, or The Shoeshine Boy, in English and later in Spanish. It was a surprise hit, and it got a lot of attention in Guatemala. Including from the Guatemalan government. For years, Corrado and Dr. Hall had been collecting eggs along the longest river in Guatemala. They discovered that the eggs were full of heavy metals and other toxins, and had been trying to get the government to pay attention to these reports, how they showed that both eggs and people along the river were being exposed. And then nobody listened to us. Nobody. But his book, the story of his rise from a shoeshine boy to the manager of one of the world's greatest egg collections, it broke through in a way the reports hadn't. That I'm very, very happy of because it spurred all of these other changes, not just for him and his family, but, of course, for Guatemala even. Today... There are plans to build treatment plants all along the river. For Dr. Linnea Hall and Renee Corrado, it's an example of the possibility that lies within each drawer of eggs. 
And these are the ones that most look the most like chocolate. <laughs> so these are the ones that everybody loves to see because they're pretty phenomenal. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> well, the Western Foundation of Vertebrate Zoology might not look like much from the outside. Go in and you'll find specimens as rare as can be. For NPR News, I'm Dylan Thuris in Camarillo, California. So you can see the story occurs when the piece introduces Rene Corrado's history more fully. At that point, what could be a nice travel article recommendation becomes an actual story because it understands its twin metaphors, secrets, and caretaking. Rene Corrado is a gardener turned collections overseer who is the caretaker of the center and its eggs. He's also the real secret that is hidden, too. It's not just the egg collection located in a California strip mall that's amazing to visit. It's also Corrado himself, hidden in plain sight, someone who is nurtured at the center he now oversees and protects. In many ways, one story is nested in another story, sorry, but it's Corrado that makes what might just be a quirky factoid something that comes alive. The place takes on metaphoric resonance. It's not just a setting, it's a symbol. Poets understand the difference between an anecdote and a poem is metaphor. Metaphor is the ability to tell two different stories at the same time but using the exact same language. So a string of nice images about an egg collection center only becomes a poem, or in this case a story, once the reader understands those images connect to a larger argument the piece itself is having about, say, migration, or caretaking, or maybe coming out of one's shell. In other words, the words and images, as they speak to each other, undergo a change in their meaning. They become something more than what they initially seem. A bunch of anecdotes or details about a person or place aren't enough to make a powerful story. You need something to change, whether that is a character or a place or the reader's perception of the situation at hand. When you write nonfiction about a person, whether you or someone or something else, that person or thing has to change. Corrado, for example, starts out in the story as a gardener, and by the end of the story, he is a biologist. Oftentimes, the physical details and setting of a story become a metaphor once that change has happened. The bird center, for instance, takes on larger metaphorical resonance once we see how Corrado himself has changed. So as we go through this semester, one question to ask yourself about the essays you write is, what changes? Who changes? How and why? And what is the language, the imagery, and its metaphors that accompany those changes? If nothing changes, you have a situation. You don't have a story. Vivian Gornick read a great craft book titled The Situation in the Story and the Difference Between Them. Basically, a situation is just what it says it is. Details, a scene, a plot point. The story is what moves outside of these physical details. The story is how the character changes. Radio nonfiction writers are pretty blunt about this problem of situation versus story. In radio, you have to grab people's attention fast. You have to make people care about what's taking place on the page. Audio nonfiction writers ask themselves this question, and then what happened? Even nonfiction pieces seemingly just about place or situation oftentimes focus on change. Read Ian Fraser's Take the F. Go ahead, read it now. I'll wait. No, actually, I won't. So as you see, the situation of Fraser's essay is about, well, taking the F train home through Brooklyn. But as we take this train, we start to see that a different story altogether is being told. Fraser, 
like most writers, uses a lot of different images that take on different metaphoric weight. Brooklyn is a stain, for example, and there's a lot of associations we can have with that word. The F train itself is a metaphor for home and for America. And then there's this image of a concrete hole on the second page of that essay. It reads like this. Our subway is the F train. It runs under a building and shakes the floor. The F is generally a reliable train, but one spring as I walked in the park, I saw emergency vehicles gathered by a concrete-sheathed hole in the lawn. Firemen lifted a metal lid from the hole and descended into it. After a while, they reappeared, followed by a few people, then dozens of people, then a whole lot of people, passengers from the disabled F train climbing one at a time out of an exit shaft. On the F, I sometimes see large women in straw hats reading a newspaper called the Caribbean Sunrise, and Orthodox Jews bent over Talmudic texts in which the footnotes have footnotes, and groups of teenagers wearing identical red bandanas with identical red plastic baby pacifiers in the corners of their mouths, and female couples in pork pie hats, and young men with the silhouettes of the Manhattan skyline razored into their short side hair from one temple around to the other, and Russian-speaking men with thick wrists and big wrist watches, and a hefty, tall woman with long, straight blonde hair who hums and closes her eyes and absently practices cello fingerings on the metal subway pole. As I watched the F-train passengers emerge among the grass and trees of Prospect Park, the faces were as varied as usual, but the expressions of indignant surprise were all about the same. The concrete sheath hole is an arresting image, since of course we see people descending and reappearing into it. But look at the people Fraser lists. Women reading the Caribbean Sunrise, Orthodox Jews, teenagers who may or may not be here identified as potential gang members by their clothing, lesbians, hipsters, Russians, etc. Each one goes down into the hole, then comes up. Their faces varied as usual, Fraser writes, but their expressions of indignant surprise all about the same. Now, let's look at the last paragraph of the essay. Everybody, it seems, is here. At Grand Army Plaza, I have seen traffic tie-ups caused by Haitians and others rallying in support of President Aristide, and by St. Patrick's Day parades, and by Jews of the Lubavitcher sect celebrating the birthday of their Grand Rebbe in a slow procession of 93 motorhomes, one for each year of his life. Local taxis have bumper stickers that say, Allah is great. One of the men who made the bombs that blew up the World Trade Center used an apartment just a few blocks from me. When an election is held in Russia, crowds line up to cast ballots at a Russian polling place in Brighton Beach. A while ago, I volunteer taught reading at a public elementary school across the park. One of my students, a girl, was part Puerto Rican, part Greek, and part Welsh. Her looks were a lively combination, set off by sea-green eyes. I went to a map store in Manhattan and bought maps of Puerto Rico, Greece, and Wales to read with her, but they didn't interest her. A teacher at the school was directing a group of students to set up chairs for a program in the auditorium, and she said to me, we have a problem here. Each of these kids speaks a different language. She asked the kids to tell me where they were from. One was from Korea, one from Brazil, one from Poland, one from Guyana, one from Taiwan. In the program that followed, a chorus of fourth and fifth graders sang, God bless America, you're a grand old flag, and I'm a Yankee doodle dandy. As you can tell, this is an essay that, on the surface, looks like all situation. Details about Fraser's trips in and out of the city via the F train. 
But at its core, it's an essay that celebrates a change not entirely unlike Corrado's change in the NPR piece. Fraser's piece is about a subway line and the idea of America as a melting pot. It's a pro-assimilationist essay. The F train not only is the subject of the essay, it organizes the action in the essay. The F train is the symbolic and literal vehicle that makes Americans out of a wide variety of people. Myself, I think the essay is pretty corny, and its pro-assimilationist views might be rightly looked at askance now. In this essay's change, everyone gets homogenized, all their faces are the same, by that hole they have to go through. Also, look at how individual ethnic, national, and racial differences here glided over by the simple act of singing American songs and participating in American acts of patriotism. It's a post-racial, post-identity fantasy of America in which the reader can see Fraser insisting on change, but also maybe being a little blind to what this change would cost. Do you believe the essay's metaphor? Maybe not. But Fraser does, and he employs its sentimental value to the full hilt. It makes the title a little creepy, too. Rather than an instruction, it becomes a demand for the reader. Take the F. Or else. Fraser's is a good example of an essay that maybe hasn't thought too carefully about the implications of the metaphors he's employed, which may be another question you should ask yourself as this semester continues. Have you seen the metaphors you've employed elsewhere in literature? Do they recall other arguments you've heard about other people, identities, or positions? Also, do the metaphors require people change in order for you to make a didactic point? All nonfiction, perhaps all good writing, relies on metaphor. Metaphor signals to the reader what to pay attention to. It reminds her of the larger story at stake, and finally, perhaps most importantly, it heightens the effect of the changes that take place in the text. That's it. Read the rest of the assigned essays on our syllabus for this week and follow the directions in your prompt to complete your written piece. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of The Coronavirus Lectures.